0: We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to napod.xyz if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day.
1: Thank you. My name is Nick. I'm an alcoholic. Can you hear me? Feels like I'm in my head, you know, people scattered all over the place like my thoughts are. And I really uh, enjoyed the raffle. I was sitting in the half-measure section with Janet and Robbie, watching those ticket numbers. because Bob said, he was giving out 68 Valium. And somebody straightened us out said it was the 60th medallion. I thought he was handing out Valium. I said, "Hey, this is my kind of group up here. Relax under the trees. I'm, uh, I am really uh, pleased to be here. I'm pleased to be anywhere sober. Let me tell you. And most of us, you know, should be dead. And uh, it is indeed in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous." almost anywhere in the world when you get together in common fellowship in the common solution in recovery that we hang out together and do this thing called recovery and I love recovery I uh, I want to tell you how I get to Alcoholics Anonymous in the beginning I'd like to welcome all the newcomers if this is your first meeting and you don't hear anything that you relate to come to another meeting in fact go to a lot of meetings I got to Alcoholics Anonymous in November of 1969 and I was on a park bench I had been drunk for about two weeks I used to go to this place downtown Honolulu called Hotel Street where they had all those skid row bars the swing club and the hubba hubba remember that Odie The Hubba Hubba. That was a bad club. People were so mean and ugly there. The pool balls wouldn't come out of the pockets. Tough place. Loved to drink there. But anyways, I had uh, I had lost a job. I had recently had a baby girl that was born, and uh, I was out drunk on the streets. I had about four or five drunken publics and I lost two or three jobs. And it was an old Chinaman. came out and he saw me on this park bench and what he did is he tapped me on the shoulder and I looked up and I saw this kind of a kind gentle face and this was a longtime sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous and he knew it instinctively he knew exactly what was wrong with me and he did one of these things He didn't say, uh, follow me, I'll take you to an AA meeting. Because if he had said that, I wouldn't have followed him. He just did that. And so I got up because uh, I thought he was going to buy me something to drink. I followed him up the street. I thought he was going to get me something to eat or give me some money or do something. And instead what he did was he took me to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. This is in November of 1969. And I got into this room. And I looked around at the people sitting in the room. You know, before the meeting, all the people are standing around. They're kissing and they're hugging like an orgy with morals. You know, I couldn't. And uh, I sat down. I began looking around the room and I saw that, you know, they had the 12 steps on the wall and the traditions. and, uh, And I was really kind of looking around for alcoholics. These people were really nicely dressed and their hair was brushed and their teeth were brushed. I mean, some of the bars that I hung out at, if you had teeth, you were a preferred customer. You know? So I was looking around for uh, the alcoholics in the room. And I was the youngest member in the room. And what I loved about Alcoholics Anonymous was that tangible presence in the room. It was there in my first meeting. It is there in every meeting that I go to. There was something very attractive that emanated. From the people in those rooms. It was not the tables or the chairs, it was what the people brought to the room. And in spite of the way my head was and the way my life was, this loving and caring presence penetrated the pain that I was in at the time. And this wonderful old Chinaman, you know, he brought me a a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You're new here. That's where the program is. It's in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. First hundred and sixty-four pages. And this wonderful Chinaman gave me that book. And in his own inimitable way, he said, uh, Write a big book. Don't drink. Go to meeting. So I said, Charlie, well, I can probably do that. Now, I lived on the other side of the island. And I, I got home. And that night I began to read the book. I began to identify with the feelings in the book. And, you know, there weren't too many meetings back then in the in the Hawaiian Islands. And so uh, and it was a couple days later, my head began to uh, straighten out. You know how it is when you're young and you sober up. I was a part-time genius. I continued to read the book. And then I remembered what they said. They said, keep coming back. And then my phone rang, and uh, it was Chinaman Charlie, and uh, told me to get back to the meeting. I lived on the windward side of the island, so I I got back to the meeting, but I got I was there late, and I had time kind of a trouble finding the meeting, but I got there. And I sat in the room, and I felt that tangible presence again. Was something wonderful in that rooms, and they were talking about not drinking, and eleven step, and the twelfth step, and they were talking about step. I didn't know what they were talking about. I just, just didn't want to hurt anymore. And so Charlie told me to, uh, you know, he asked me, what do you think of big book? I said, well, Charlie, I did read the book. Uh, I think it displays a conspicuous absence of intelligence. It manifests unmitigated infantilism. Most of it is irresponsible and incompetent. And I noted, Charlie, the salient lack of perspicuity. And Charlie went, don't drink What to meeting read the big book again It's all right okay I can do that I can read the big book again I took the book home and I read it again now Charlie was a wise old Chinaman and what he did is he got this this guy Mokiata was a Hawaiian Samoan guy i thought this guy's like six foot ten. You know, three hundred and forty pounds. This guy had shoulders in two different time zones. And this guy was immense. And Charlie called me up, you know, and he said, uh Moke will pick you up at seven thirty. Moke had problem with anger. Moke have problem with patience. You better be ready. And sure enough, that guy would show up at my front door. I mean, you he'd blot out the door. And he'd say, say hold on, Charlie, I'm getting my shoes. I mean, Moki, I'm getting my shoes. And that was his, he had two-year gung-ho sobriety. And that was his primary duty, was to make sure that I got to meetings. So I I got to a lot of meetings. And uh, and sure enough, you know, Mokey, I mean, uh, Charlie would call me up again and say, "Moki will pick you up at 7.30. I'm thinking, how many of these meetings do I got to go to? And why are you sending him to pick me up? When he see you, he feels better. <laughs> I have no idea what that man was talking about. But I got into this rhythm of living. I began to embrace alcoholics and honest, because after the alcohol was out of my life, I began to feel better. And I like what the people had in the room. There's something incredibly attractive In the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, you know there's no entry in any dictionary in any lexicon in any language to describe the kind of love we pass around in these rooms and if you're new here keep showing up because uh, you'll understand what I mean you come here and you listen to the music for a while and after a while you begin hearing the words And then you begin to sing along with us. And I'll tell you, I I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love what we have in these rooms. I love what goes on in them. You know, and they say if you come here ahead of some other people, you reach your hand out. If you've been here a while, you reach your hand out. And if you're new here, when you come in, you reach your hand out to somebody that's been here before you. Because when you're hanging on with two hands, you can't fall down. So if you're new here, reach your hand out and somebody here will grab on. So I began to get into this rhythm of living. I began to enjoy Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And then we did this thing called the Geographical. Geographical was the, uh, I left the state of Hawaii, went to Southern California. Great job. Began working in the, uh, corporate America. Got into management. It was doing well. And uh my wife had a daughter that was going to be born. And, you know, I had a series of circumstances that happened. And if you come to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings enough, you're going to hear messages like this. That four years and 12 days later, I picked up a drink. I don't want to go into the circumstances about it. You know, my father died the same day my daughter was born. You know, my sister... uh She was hospitalized. She had a concussion, a broken leg. She had all kinds of problems going on. and uh, You know, and, and this happened in such a short time, I turned around to go to that spiritual bank account that we talk about here in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I hadn't been to a meeting in 11 months. Because when I went to meetings in Los Angeles and Southern California, it was different. Different faces in different places. And, you know, part of my alcoholism tells me this. I don't know why it does but it does when i showed up in the rooms at honolulu these people i was the youngest guy in the room i had a lot of love a lot of attention a lot of affection and when you're self-centered and self-obsessed you see we thrive on that kind of stuff i went to the rooms in los angeles of course i was brand new i didn't know anybody but i had alcoholism and it showed up like this if you treat me special i feel average And if you treat me average, I feel rejected. I don't know why that is. And so these set of circumstances happened. I did not make a phone call. I went to a bar at 6 o'clock in the morning and I picked up that drink. And if you're new here, don't sell physical sobriety short. Because everything that I heard in the rooms in Honolulu began to transpire in my life. And what transpired in my life, and I'll tell you, I've got... uh, jailhouse stories, psych ward stories. All of the insanity of alcoholism happened in my life over the next seven and a half, almost eight years. And, uh, you know, by the time I got finished, I had about 47 drunken publics. I had five of them in Honolulu. 52 drunken publics. I became a street drunk. I mean, that's where I wound up. In the street or in jail. In a county hospital. The insanity of it all. Now, I want to I'm going to fast forward because I want to give you a course in speed weeping here, so tell you how I got to Alcoholics Anonymous in May of 1982. And I wound up in the Highland Hospital, the county hospital. I was vomiting blood, and uh, they did a lot of tests on me. They put me upstairs. I had some alcoholic seizures in the first 24 hours. 72 hours later, I went to delirium treatments. True DTs. I didn't have anything to drink. By the way, they wrestled a quart of whiskey. Kessler whiskey. I went in the emergency room with a quart of Kessler whiskey and they wrestled away from me. We had a tug-of-war in the emergency room. Here I am bleeding and uh, it was Kessler, smooth as silk. Remember that stuff? Burned a hole in my throat. (laughs) 72 72 hours later, I had delirium treatments. A true case of delirium treatments. I hadn't had anything to drink for three hours and they shot me with shot me with Valium 125 milligrams of Valium couldn't pull me out they shot me with 20 minutes later 125 milligrams of Librium and I was still dying I was in delirium treatments and then there was an expert on the floor that said you better hook him up with IV alcohol or you're gonna lose him pitiful and more incomprehensible demoralization and they came and they hooked me up with IV alcohol right into my veins And that pulled me out of the delirium treatment. In fact, Robbie was on the hospital floor arguing with the doctor, saying, how how can you possibly do this? He's so close to getting off alcohol, what are you putting the alcohol back? You know, it was to save my life. And there I was on this gurney, you know, I've been thrashing around, and I kind of worked a little bit loose. I was in these restraints on the gurney. But I've been in a lot of county hospitals and I looked at all those bottles up there and I found the alcohol bottle. It was on the far left-hand side, you know, hanging down there. It looked so beautiful. It was glistening, you know. It said alcohol dextrose and I followed the line down to the dropper and it was dripping way too slow for me. <laughs> so I turned it up. <laughs> and uh, so they put me in four-point restraints and... Uh, And then they came by and they said I needed emergency surgery. My, you know, I had blood in my urine. My kidneys were hemorrhaging. I had a, I had cirrhosis. I, you know, I was dying of alcoholism. The insanity of it all. And that's, you know, in the month of May 1982, I was dying of alcoholism. They came with this thing and they said, sign off. You can die on the table. You can, all those complications can happen. If you have any family or friends, you better call somebody because you may not get out of here. And I was dying from something called hardening of the attitudes. You guys know about that? You know, I I didn't want to live. I didn't really want to die. I couldn't drink anymore, and I sure the hell couldn't get sober. You ever been there? Deep, deep spiritual unrest. And you know, I don't know about you, but I lived in a place called, I like to define problem consciousness. That's what, because everything I did in my life and everything that happened in my life just was a problem, a conflict, problem consciousness. And my defense against problem consciousness was, I don't care, I hate you, I hate me, and so what? And that's where I lived for a long time. So they told me I had to go through this emergency surgery, and I told the doctor, so what? You know, doc, it'd be a tragedy if I lived, because I'd just be back here next month. And they had this whole surgery team collected together. And uh, they had two anesthesiologists, a liver specialist, a kidney specialist. I mean, a whole surgery team there trying to save my life. And I didn't care. So I went through this emergency surgery. The reason they had two anesthesiologists is because when I got there, I'd been drinking Kessler whiskey. I had uh, seizures, so they shot me full of Dilantin. And within 74, two hours, they shot me full of Librium. Then they shot me with Valium. And then they put an alcohol drip on me, which then I turned up. And now they were going to give me anesthesia. Which was a, sounded like a good idea to me, but they were arguing about it. I could OD on the table. And as it turned out, they were arguing. And I went under. And during the, toward the end of the surgery, I mean, they got me cut open on the table. This guy sewing me up. And I still have a picture of this in my mind. You can ask my wife. She was there. We're talking about this case. I woke up on the table. My head came up. Popped up. And I saw these doctors sitting there stitching me up and they looked terrified. I thought, God, these guys need a drink, man. They were terrified. Anxiety. And then the two anesthesiologists got to argue again and <clears throat> I went under again. And they gave me a little too much and I had this these... Uh, oxygen blood level problems and you know complications and i i you know when i first came to the first thing that i said when i got up is i saw my my wife there who uh was a loving support through a lot of years and i said you know robbie i love you and then my first conscious thought after that was hey is my alcohol drip still on you know, just got to check. <laughs> you know, that's hope to die alcoholism. And, you know, if you're new here, you may not get to that place, but you don't have to go to that place. You know, we do the research for you. So anyways, you know, on the other side of surgery, in the intensive care, my liver began to shut down. I had kidneys backing up. And I had what's called May 23, 1982, an out-of-body experience. I mean, I was emotionally, spiritually physically traumatized. I went beyond dying. I died a thousand times before I got to that hospital. And I didn't care. But May 23rd, 1982, I had this out-of-body experience, a spiritual experience. The book talks about it in the, in the back of the book. Spiritual awakening. I call it a private illumination. I do not have the words to transmit a transcendent experience. But I'll tell you what it did. Where I lived in problem consciousness, problem consciousness, I don't care. I hate you, I hate me, and so what? And May 23rd, 1982, I went to solution consciousness. Thank you, God, how can I serve? Thank you, God, how can I serve? You know, that's where I live today. And it took a long time for me to physically heal up and through the grace of a loving God and the people in Alcoholics Anonymous I have been able to a day at a time up to this very moment to be here with you I live a life of grace this is the most powerful time in my life and you know when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous there were a lot of loving people uh, fortunately we uh, were able to put our marriage back together. My wife let me come back in the back room. She was happy that I just didn't die. And these people from Alcoholics Anonymous came up and they, uh, I couldn't go to a meeting for about 10 days because I shook so bad. I couldn't walk across the street. I couldn't go through a, a, the Caldecott Tunnel. I couldn't go over to Bay Bridge. I had a lot of fears, a lot of phobias. And I knew that some way, somehow, if I stayed close to you good people... That it somehow through the grace of God would come back together because you gave me something called hope. And hope for me is called hearing other people's experiences. And I went to that room and you shared with me what happened to you. And I shared what happened in my life. You know, that's what happens in these rooms together, in these places together. We come together, we break bread, spiritual bread. And, you know, I I was never spiritually opened until May 23rd, 1982, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and got nourished. And so if you're new here and you're hurting, or if you've been around here for a while and you're hurting, stay close. Stay close. Don't leave before the miracle happens. As I say, I live a life of grace today. And in early recovery, you know, even in spite of everything that happened to me, 90 days into recovery, something rises to the surface. You know what that is? Something called alcoholism. In spite of everything that I went through, jails, county, drunk tanks, psych wards, the insanity of all that insanity, 91 days, a thought popped in my head. You know what, Nick? been nice here man but you need a drink how could that be and I fell into this depression you know I think depression is something that happens in Alcoholics Anonymous that recovering alcoholic because you see I suffered from a basic inability to open the joy I didn't know how to laugh I didn't know how to play I didn't know I didn't know how to connect with feelings I didn't know what feelings were so out of touch with me Because I've been running in problem consciousness for a long time. And that's the only thing I know. They say Alcoholics Anonymous, AA also stands for altered attitudes. And I was told to keep going to meetings. And what happened when I was going to meetings, this depression set in. This beautiful couple, Fran and John, from the valley, they used to come by. A guy named Big Don. It was somebody, uh, Pete and I were talking about Big Don. Um, You know, Bob and Lexus, they know about these good people in the valley. And they... They'd come by my house and pick me up. And I remember one time I was with Fran and John and uh, depressed, feeling low, wondering how am I going to get sober. And uh, I turned the radio on again, you know, those sad country songs, songs that leave you with no hope. Tears in my ears from lying on my back, crying over you, all that stuff. My wife left with my best friend. Sure I'm going to miss him. <laughs> I'm just kidding, honey. <laughs> I've been so miserable she's gone, it's like she never left at all. <laughs> One of my favorites. So anyways, I'd be listening to the sad, you know, I'd be crying before we got to the meeting and uh friend had slapped my hand and turned that radio off. 90 more days, no country western music for you. And, you know, I was sensitive. And then I sat in the meeting and it came to me. It came to me. I figured it out. See? That's the three worst words you can hear an alcoholic say is, I've been thinking. Because I sat there, I was figuring it out. You know, I was sitting in a room in tri Valley Fellowship. And it dawned on me. The truth of it all dawned on me. I was a sensitive, misunderstood genius. Trapped in a body made by the Pillsbury Company. Suffering from deep feelings of wimpiness. With an inability to ask for help. We die for image. Got to look good, man. Don't mess with my look good now. I'll hang out by the coffee bar, pour coffee. How you doing? Fine. Hey, things are good, man. Gee, I heard you separated from your wife. Your car got repossessed and you lost your job. Hey, fine, man. No sugar with that? Keep going to meetings. If you're new here, don't go without a sponsor. You know what sponsors are? Tuition free course. You go to school out here to learn something, you gotta pay money. You gotta buy your books. Alcoholics Anonymous is absolutely free. Sponsor is a tuition free course. Experience right there at hand. Absolutely free. I mean, you pay everything you got, right, to get here. And after you pay all that, then it's free. And I used to really worry when I got here. You know, gee, I used to... Man, I lost everything. I lost everything. I got nothing. got nothing. I want to tell you something. The everything that I had lost really turned out to be nothing. And the nothing that I was left with turned out to be everything. So if you're new here, don't leave before the miracle happens. I really believe that in every case, bar none, sometime or other, if you continue coming to meetings, you're going to have some spiritual experience. Educational variety, self-earned, self-taught variety, or a gift from God variety. I believe it happens to everyone in these rooms. I believe everyone's going to have a spiritual experience. It's going to come in the form of a letter in your mailbox from the home office. It's going to have your name and address on it. And all you have to do is walk out. Walk out and get that letter. And open it. And read it. It's gonna say, live. It's gonna say, love. It's gonna say, serve. You see, because I believe that's the currency in Alcoholics Anonymous. The currency. The currency at the gate. When we're, when we're done with this, you know, I don't know. I used to think about this a lot. When you're finished here. We all have to exit sometime, but the currency at the gate, I believe, for this alcoholic, the currency at the gate is not going to be, you know, what kind of job did I have? How much money did I make? What kind of car did you drive? What kind of clothes did you wear? Who did you hang out with? What kind of degrees did you have? Currency at the gate is going to be how well did you love? And who did you serve? Who did you serve? In his name, who did you serve? I live a life of grace. This is the most powerful time in my life. I had a great opportunity in recovery given to me by the people in Alcoholics Anonymous every day, daily on a basis. And when I was talking about a sponsor, I had a wonderful man who came into my life. And some of you know him. And that man went far beyond, far beyond what a sponsor should do for a man. So if you're new here, do not go without a sponsor. And I remember this man. You know, I had an ego problem. I used to go to the fellowship. Now, I didn't smoke back in the early 80s. I drank with two hands. I never smoked. And so when I went to meetings, people put out cigarette butts out in front of the fellowship. And I complained about it. So my friend Mason made me pick up cigarette butts. I complained about the bathroom. He made me clean the toilets. Hey, clean the toilet or go die. That's how he explained it. Real involved, real intellectual. Clean the toilet or go die. (laughs) I could understand that. And uh, he never paid any attention to what I said to him. And every time I I you know, in the early meetings, I'd go to meetings and I had, the, uh, you know, we isolate, alienate, you know, can't open to joy in our life. And I complained a lot, criticized. I used to have a critic, an edit, a director. You ever edit? I edit you, I edit me, I check that, criticize, do all that. Head busy, nowhere near the meeting, recovery going on in the meeting, head way out here. You at the park, let me invite you back in, if you knew, got a meeting here. That's how our minds are, man. That's how I was. And then after the meeting, I'd go up to Bill and I'd say, like, man, you know those people? They're really clickish. They really, they just hang out with their little friends, you know, and they smile and laugh. They're trying to pressure me into happiness. You know, they hang out. They're so clickish. And there again, see, as soon as I complain, he says, I want you to do. What I want you to do is to go up to someone you don't know in the meeting. Go up to them. Introduce yourself. Stick out your hands. Shake hands. Say hello. Make some eye contact and introduce yourself. Eye contact. Easy enough, but for how long? Fine line separates eye contact from the piercing stare of a psychopath, you know. Hey, you newcomer, hey, keep coming back. Don't go without a sponsor. tuition free course. As I said, I had a great opportunity to uh, work in the alcoholism field. I remember uh, Janet here back from May Street. We had a lot of fun getting into uh, into recovery and helping others. And you know I had worked for a long time and I had a whole bunch of vacation lined up almost a month and I had this great opportunity to travel. And you know I was working I was running a detox. 35 beds and halfway houses and community every day alcoholism alcoholism my phone would ring at 2 in the morning 4 in the morning it was like having a rock around my neck you know? and i was grateful for that because it kept me connected into what this thing called alcoholism is but i had almost a whole month of vacation lined up and i thought to myself you know where can i get away from alcoholism go to some other place and do meetings for me i'm tired of alcoholics Maybe I ought to go to El you know? So uh, I booked a trip. I went to the far side of the world. The other side of the world. I went to the Far East trip. Went to Hong Kong, Singapore. Spent nearly a month, three and a half weeks or so, I don't know, in India. The other side of the world on the globe. And I had this trip lined up. Singapore Airlines bought these brand new 747s, and I run in the airplane and I sit down. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. And I sat down, and a few minutes later, this guy sits down uh, next to me, and he looks over, and I look at him, he says, Hey, you doing, buddy, where you, where, you hit, where you headed? <laughs> you know, God puts another alcoholic right in my life. I, I'm not even out of the San Francisco airport. I got a 12-step call here. So anyways, uh, we're flying on the plane. I whipped the big book out, and he's drinking coffee, and By the time we get to Honolulu, (laughs) he's a little shaky. And uh, 11 and a half hours to Hong Kong, and we've started going through the steps. And, you know, that's where I learned. Recovery is in front of me to do. You know, and and there was an incredible thing that happened to me in in India. And I was going on this tour with, uh, he's a law professor from the university, and he was showing me some things here. And uh, so I got to know a little bit. Of the city and the next day I traveled down these roads and I sort of got lost and I went down this side road and I saw something I've never seen in my life I've never seen this in my life and there were some people in front of me on the walkway and all of a sudden they just split I mean they took off and then a few steps in front of me it was a leper I've never seen leprosy before and this man Was dying of leprosy. This man had missing toes and missing hands. He smelled so bad. He had dark rags draped all over him. He smelled so bad. My first instinct was to turn away, which I did to run. I never saw anything so incredibly painful in my life. But something pulled me. Because you taught me how to give. And what that, what that beggar, what that leper was doing is he had two hands in front of him. He was begging. And I gave him, you know, I had thirty rupees. Indian money is nothing, man. American money goes so far in India. I gave him thirty rupees. And he said, Thank you. He spoke English? You speak English? Yeah. His name was Sukhidra. And so every morning on that walk, you know, I'd go, I found my way, and I'd see Sukhidra, I'd give him thirty rupees, forty rupees every morning. Because you taught me how to give. And one morning, you know, I I kind of watched what he was doing. And what he did one morning is he went across the street where there was a vendor and he would put 10 rupees down on this side of the vendor and way on the other side the guy would put fruit and rice. And Sukhija would go to the other side, the guy would go get the money, he would get the fruit and rice. Then he went down by the railway station, hobbling. And at the railway station, in a broken down cardboard and sheet metal that was rusted almost through, there were two other lepers that couldn't even walk. And he was serving them. And you know, I talked to this Sukhidra. And he asked me, Nick, what do you do? What are you doing here? And I was going to explain, you know, what do I do in life? Well, I run an alcoholic detox. How am I going to explain alcoholism to him? And I told him, I run a detox. And he just, Alcoholics, they're dying. And he said, Bangla. Bangla is the Indian word for alcohol. And he told me, he spoke English pretty well, how his uncle died of bungla. And he said, bungla kills. I said, yes, Shikidra, I know. And that day I'd given him 30 rupees and he asked me about the sick ones at the detox. And he gave me 20 rupees back of that money and he said, please, Nick, please, buy something for the sick ones at the detox. And tell them that Sukidra is praying for them. I live a life of grace today. When it comes to gratitude, I'm overpaid. I'm overpaid. This day, August 24th, is the most powerful time in my life. I know what I have today. I'm wealthy beyond measure. So I was going along in sobriety... A few years down the line here, I'm about 10 years sober. You know how you make plans. I'm making plans. We're having a Christmas of 1991. You know, a little family together. And for some reason this happens, you know. It's called the will of God. The will of God for me is I just began to bleed. And I found myself wound up in the San Ramon med- Medical Emergency. And they did all these tests, you know, and they sent me over to my doctor. He's a beautiful doctor. God, what a beautiful man. And it was Christmas Eve and the lights were turned down and he had sent his help home. And I went over there and I went to his office and he had his office lamp turned down low. And I walked in and he said, Nick, you have a large cancerous tumor on your right kidney. It's malignant. And it needs to come out right away. And this beautiful man had tears in his eyes. You know, and I, I was standing up when he told me, and I, and I went over to him and I put my arm around him. And I said, Doc, it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. And he looked at me with that kind of quizzical look, you know. He gave me that kind of look like, what planet did you say you were from? Oh. And he said, he said, where, I love the way he put it. He said, where do you get the spiritual fortitude? I said, Doc, it's a spiritual path called Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and he understood. And one of the most difficult things I had to do in recovery at 10 years sober, I had to go home to a wife and a child and a daughter, I mean a daughter and a son. And I didn't want to tell the kids. I didn't want to ruin their Christmas. They knew something was going on. And after they opened the presents Christmas morning, you see, we have to take this program home. It's called Honesty. And I learned something about honesty. The truth told with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent. Be careful how you tell the truth. And I, you know, I really honor people who attempt to be honest in their lives. I really do. I honor them. But I told my children and I told my, you know, my wife, and it just shattered them. Shattered everybody. And then they called again from the hospital. Now what? I had to go back for what? Some more tests. And here it is, you know, getting on to New Year's Eve, they, they're doing some liver scan and this scan and that scan and checking my brain. You know, you, mri you know what do we know about that stuff i'm thinking mri massive rectal incision what are they going to do to me you know i'm terrified here and then the news comes back you know and they said nick things don't look good you have a spot the size of a grape on your liver you know and then december 31st new year's eve i went into the hospital And, you know, I had to, uh, they came and they told me about this massive surgery, man. It don't get any bigger than this. When you take your kidney out and take my kidney, my lymph nodes, and my adrenal gland, and they're going to cut into the main arteries of the body. And they have those diagrams there. They got to let you know you can bleed to death on the table. You can have a reaction to this. You can, you know, all that stuff. I say, where do I sign? You see, because I never had a petitionary prayer in my entire sobriety. I never asked God for anything. My prayer was a prayer of surrender, and I learned that here. My prayer of surrender was God, give me that which you think best for me. Give me the strength and courage to accept what you deem best for me. Prayer of surrender. And later on, for some reason, they forgot this. They came back up later at night. They had another sheet to fill out. You know, we forgot about this Nick, sign here. What's that? Oh, it's this blood thing. You know, um, we forgot. What do you mean? We're talking about HIV. This thing happened so fast. I didn't have family and friends to give blood. We're going out of the main pool. And, you know, it's a disclaimer. And I don't know why. All the things I could have died on the table or doing this or doing. I surrendered everything. But why did that hook me? So I began for the first time in recovery bargaining with God. I'm first guy on the chopping block in the morning. And they wake me up, and I'm going down, and I'm bargaining with God. Gee, God, you know, I mean, uh, I never asked you for anything in my recovery. Never prayed for anything. Please, can you give me good blood? All right, if I'm supposed to get bad blood and it's in your will, then just be with me and help me get. But do you think I never asked for anything at all? And I was bargaining. It's called alcoholism. Deep spiritual surrender. God is or He isn't. You either go with God or you don't. God is everything or He is nothing. Step one is the problem. Step two is the solution. Step three is the commitment to pursue the solution. And there I was on the chopping block in the morning. You know, and I went under and I, I came out. You know, I was on the table for five hours and whatever it was, five hours, ten minutes, five hours, fifteen minutes, a long time. And this doctor who was from Stanford, the specialist that did the surgery, he comes up a couple days later, he comes to see me. And he says, Nick, I just want you to know something. He says, we had a lot of blood for you on hand. Because when we cut into the main arteries of the body, you bleed profusely. And he said, I had to check with the guy on your blood volume three times. He says, halfway through the surgery, you stop bleeding. You didn't even need any blood. And I'm thinking to myself, petitionary prayers, God, do they really work? God, I'd like that nice house on the hill, God. I'd like a Mercedes. I'd like the raise and pay. Man, I've been missing this for 10 years. I've gone back to the prayer of surrender. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love it here. I love what you people have. You have what I want. And I get up every morning on a daily basis. And I thank God for my life. I thank God for you. We have something called fellowship. It's a shared experience. You know, it's not a me program. It's a we program. I really believe that... uh, this spirituality that we have in the program if you think about it one drunk talking to another in 1935 two men today there's two million recovering people and Alcoholics Anonymous is in 128 countries in the world wide this is the biggest spiritual movement on the face of the earth and I'm really privileged and honored to be part of this. I'm gonna close with a story that I love. There's a really poor family. They're so poor, they're called sharecroppers back in the old days. You know, they didn't have anything. They had just lived in an old wooden shack. They didn't have any windows. They had nothing. All they did is work the field really hard. They planted grain. They seed. They raised it. They harvested it. They went into town. They sold it. They got money. They went back to the field and they worked the land again. They were so poor they didn't have anything. For one year, for some reason, the seedlings that they got grew a little extra. They had a little surplus. First time in years. And they didn't know what to do. They had a little extra money. And when they were in town selling the crop and buying seeds, they had a little money left over and they bought. Through a Sears catalog, they just had enough money for a mirror. They would never had a mirror. An old handheld mirror, you know, they saw it in the catalog. The mother of the family saw it, and they they had just enough money. Then they went back home, and a few days later, you know, the mail comes on horseback, way out there. And they come running up, the mother of the family, she opens the package up. And she looks at herself. She sees herself. And she says, John, John, her husband's there with her. And her daughter's there. And she says, John, look at me. Look at me, I'm beautiful. I have pretty eyes. You told me all these years I have beautiful eyes. I do. You know, and John, he took the mirror and he looked at himself. Mary, I'm kind of ruggedly handsome myself. You know, my curly hair, look, look. And then the 13-year-old daughter, she took the mirror. She looked at the mirror herself. She says, Mom, look, Mom, I have your eyes. I have Daddy's hair. I'm beautiful, too. What they didn't want to happen, they didn't want to happen, was the eight-year-old boy came running in. They didn't want him to have that mirror. He grabbed the mirror and he looked at himself. Why didn't they want him to see? Because when he was three years old, he was kicked by the mule in the face. It disfigured him. It was lucky he just didn't die. And, and, he, and he, was, he was grotesque, he was ugly. And he grabbed that mirror and he looked at himself and he said, God, I'm ugly. Mom, I'm ugly. And he asked his father, he said, Daddy, have I always been like this? His father says, yes, son. And he says, and you love me? And his father says, yes, son, I love you. And he said, why? Why? And his father said, Because you're mine. And every day, every day when I get up, I use the 12 steps, man, and I look at myself and I see myself. I see my shortcomings. I see my defects. I see my ugliness. And I say, God, Father, have I always been like this? He says, yes. And I say, and you love me. And he says, yes. And every day I ask him why. And he tells me, because you're mine. Because you're mine. And what I believe in my heart of hearts is that we're all sons and daughters of the same Father. It's called a universe. One power. One power. We're all sons and daughters of the same same Father. And I really believe all of us go home. All of us go home. Why would a loving God Who knows everything. Knowing what we would choose. Why would he condemn us forever? I don't believe that. You have a punishing God. Take mine home with you tonight. Today. Take mine home. I have a loving God. We all go home. All of us. There are no failures. It's all relative. I'm going to close with something from my spiritual sponsor. Who I love and adore. And he gave me something and he asked me to try to live up to it. And I try. And I'll close with that. He said, love everyone. Love everyone to the very best of your ability. And if you're not able to do that, then in the very least, do not harm them. God bless you and thank you for the privilege.